millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, hello, hello. I'm Gary Bain and I'm here today with Peter Hart. And today, Pete, we're going to be talking about the RAMC on the Somme 1916. What's the RAMC stand for? Uh, Royal Army Medical Corps. Very good. I I remember you told me before it was Rob or my comrades and I was shocked. And I I hope you would apologise. I've never heard that phrase before, Pete. You're just being being rude. Uh, Now... (laughs) Uh, they're, they're a, ga- a gallant bunch of men, and uh, what, why, what, why are we do- why are we doing the Royal Army Medical Corps today? Well, it's it's uh, it's another one in our series on the Somme. Um, big now, series, big series. Now, understandably, there is a tendency to uh, just concentrate on the massacres of the of the the Somme and the huge numbers of dead. But throughout the battle, as in most battles, for every man that was killed three or four more are wounded. So the term... That, that, that covers a variety of... Uh... Absolutely. It could be uh, anything. It, you know, in some cases, it's a, a blessed relief or the uh, relatively minor blighty wound that some people were trying to get. So what does a blighty wound mean? Well, Just explain for them. It's it's a maiming wound that, that uh, you know... Not a maiming wound. Sorry, not a maiming <laughs> wound, but, but it's a wound sufficient enough for them to be taken back to England, i.e. Blighty, uh, for treatment. So not to the casualty clearing stations just behind the line, but all the way back, trains usually, then uh, into uh, uh, one of the ports and across to England and into hospital. And, and What if you're Scottish? Uh, well, I presume uh, you, you I think changed they, your nationality. I, I remember interviewing the lads. They all used to say, they'd say to you, uh, where are you from? And they'd say, yeah, uh, I'm from uh, Manchester. And they'd be sent to Plymouth. And if they're from, Pl- oh, yeah, yeah, if yeah. They're from Plymouth, uh, they'd find themselves in, in Edinburgh. <laughs> well, if you think about it as, it, as we've discovered recently, you know, the demands on the health service at that time would have meant that, you know, they had to go where there were beds. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, we're going to start with a quote from private. Albert Conn of the 8th Devonshire Regiment, and, and you're going to read this, Pete. And this this is a blighty wound, is, is, is that what we're talking about? That's uh, Yeah. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, uh, this is Albert Conn. Fred and I smoked, shielding with our cupped hands the glowing tip of our fags. We had to keep pressing back against the sides of the trench to allow small parties of walking wounded to pass. 
I had my leg braced against the trench when I was jolted out of my sleep <laughs> by a sharp blow on the inside of my left leg, just below the kneecap. It was just as though somebody had kicked me. I felt it with my hand in the darkness and my hand came away sticky and wet. I knew that the flesh was torn. A piece of shrapnel had gone deep in my leg. I had received what every soldier prayed for. A perfect blighty. I told Fred, that's his mate of course, he too felt the edges of a jagged wound, tied a field bandage on it and called me a lucky bastard. Right. Well, I mean, it, it, he's lucky there because, you know, it, it, I suppose it, it's a flesh wound, so to speak. It's, it's not shattered his bones, but it, it's a question of luck. And the problem was no one knew where the bullet or shrapnel might hit. It could hit anywhere, couldn't it? Could it could hit anywhere. It's a complete lottery. It could hit you. It could go through your head. It can take away your todger. It can, it can take off your big toe. There's, 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 there's it can, anything on the human body is uh, it, it can hit the, yeah. there's no it's no more likely to it anywhere than anywhere else uh now uh, Co- corporal arthur rattle he we're serving with the eighth royal fusiliers so uh, i hope you're going to do this in a london accent and he was another one of the lucky ones uh uh, and for him, when he's hit, it's almost an anti-climax because the shell explodes right next to him. And then he goes into a sort of surrealistic, muffled dream world, which is, of course, caused by the blast and the explosion and everything. So you're going to be Arthur Rattle. I had no sense of pain. I was sort of deafened and the noise in my head from the blowing in of my ears. When I realised I could walk, I did the same as everybody else. You got back. I scrambled over a heap of soil that was in front of me, blown up by the shell, and as I scrambled across it, I felt it moving. There were evidently people buried underneath who were struggling to get out. Oh, that's that's a horrible thought, isn't it? He 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 finds he discovers he's been wounded in the face, uh, so he's walking wounded. Now, walking wounded means exactly what it says. Uh, and and some of the walking wounded, uh, as we discovered last week in our Sassoon thing, uh, are not what we would consider walking wounded. They're badly wounded, but they can walk. So they, some of them do. Uh, what? Why do? Why? Why do people have to walk? Why? Why aren't they all stretched back? Well, there's no chance of them being stretched back simply because there's not enough stretchers. Um, and the, and the longer they waited in the front line area, the more likely they are to be hit again. So they're just going to stumble back as best they could, if they could. Yeah. Uh, and I presume if you're not hitting the legs, you're going to try your best. So you're going to be uh, Arthur Razzle again. And remember, you, you've been hitting the, in the face. Uh, that, so I climbed up onto the road and walked as fast as I could until I came to the glow of a cigarette burning on the side of the road. I said to the fellow who was smoking, can you tell me where there is a dressing station? And he pulled back a blanket that had been screening a little dugout in the bank of the road. He was an RAM, RAMC man. Inside, there were a couple of stretchers with some wounded men on them. He sat me on a box and fumbled with my breast tunic button. I said, oh, it's not there, it's my face, my jaw. He said, yeah, okay, and still went on. What he was doing was giving me an anti-tetanus injection in the chest. They'd found out in France that so many wounds were getting tetanus, the soil was infected quite heavily with tetanus germs. I said to him, is this a blighty one? He said, my lad... This time next week, you'll be sitting in a deck chair drinking ice drinks through a straw. He was right. 
That's a cracking quote. And the tetanus is interesting because we, we did our thing on conditions in 1914 and people were dying of tetanus. They were catching it. But so they, if you get wounded, you get a tetanus injection. I interviewed one who was given two and he tried to say, I've had it. Nah, <laughs> give me another one. They used to put a T on your forehead. A T on your forehead, so the people knew. Now, uh, some of these walking wounded, as we said, they're quite badly wounded, aren't they? Uh, yeah, and 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 actually, the journey back taxed them to the to to the limit. Often, they helped each other along as best they could. And uh, guardsman Norman Cliff was one of the wounded, and he was wounded wounded in the right thigh. Now he could hardly walk when his officer sent him back. And you're going to be Private Norman Cliff of the First Grenadier Guards. And we've met him before in podcasts, but. Uh, and he says this, On the way, I caught up with another man staggering along, and we clung to one another, each holding the other up. I was shocked to see that the top of his head was a mass of blood, and the crown seemed to be missing. I marvelled that he was still conscious and still able to use his limbs. Encouraging one another to keep going, we finally stumbled into an advanced first aid post and dropped exhausted. Wow, that's... Uh, so the bloke's he's got the top of his head clipped off, hasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Now, for the seriously wounded, there's absolutely no chance of them walking. So most have had no option but to lie where they fell. I could just picture, I mean, one minute, there you are, like yourself now, Gary, uh, the, the perfect epitome of physical manhood. And then just a second later, smashed, smashed, and and, and, and an almost helpless cripple. And, and you're going to be Sergeant William Kerr of the 5th Western Cavalry Battalion. It's Canadian, that. And... Uh, he went over the top. He got over the top in a state of almost exaltation. And you're going to take us through what happens to him and, and, and just that second from how he's struck down. Fear? I had no fear at all. All the pent-up dread and tension had completely left me. Like a shot, I was up and over the top of the trench. In no time, bullets were flying and a wicked machine gun had opened up against us on my right. One or two of my section, who had most difficulty climbing out of the trench, had barely got up into line, and I gave them an encouraging wave of my arm. Barely had I straightened myself forward again, when something with the force of a cannonball hit me full in the chest. I believed I'd been killed, and in the two seconds it took me to crumple up, my lips had only time to murmur, Oh, mother! Then nothingness. Now, for a lot of people, it's... It, I, I, I find it strange. That must have been, a lot of people, that must have been it. Um, but he had been very badly wounded. But in a strange way, we've talked about luck. Is it lucky to be hit and not killed? Or is it lucky to be not hit at all? But he does survive. And and, and when he was examined, the, the, the entry and exit bands, his heart must have been in the act of contracting or he would have been hit in the heart. Uh, I mean, that is incredible. I'm not sure how. Oh, it's what he was told, and he thought. I mean, it, it, the bullet smashed through his chest and somehow missed his heart. Um, now, do you think this, this is a bad place to be? So there you are. You're absolutely helpless. Now, do people have time to help you? Do they have time to, to, to sort of stop and have a chat and look after these severely wounded men? Uh, no, I mean, in, it, 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 it's a really, I mean, I'm stating the obvious here. It's an incredibly hostile environment, so people can't stop. Uh, if, you, if you want to survive, the first thing a wounded man's got to do is to try and take care of himself as best he could. How? how, how? Well, every soldier's carrying a field dressing in his uh, uh, inside 
tunic, tunic inside pocket. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Now uh, you're going to be uh, you're going to carry on telling the tale from Sergeant William Kerr. I opened my eyes and had a minute or two to realise I was still alive. After a while, I began to feel about my chest, for I didn't know how bad I'd been wounded or what had got me. I felt my left breast pocket sticky with blood, managed to undo the button and pull out what was in it. It was my paybook stained with blood and a bullet hole through it. I knew then it was only a bullet that had got me, not a cannonball as it had felt like. Elation at finding myself still alive helped greatly to ease the pain and sense of helplessness I felt, but fear of loss of blood began to take hold of me. It was then I remembered the first aid dressing carried in the little pocket at the bottom of my tunic and I reached down to feel if it was still there. It was. I got it out. It comprised two small pads with bandaging. Gingerly, I opened up my tunic and shirt, located the wound with my finger and placed one of my pads over and buttoned up again. Already aware of more blood under me, I hoped I could get the other pad onto the wound that must also be there, the hole where the bullet had gone out. It had clearly gone right through my chest. I finally managed by bending my left hand to slide the other pad far enough under to what I hoped was the right spot. Then I just lay still. How long I lay like that, I had little idea. The sun was going down when I became aware of footsteps. Wow. Um, you have to stop the bleeding uh, or, or you bleed out. You die, don't you? Uh, um uh, it, but but a lot of them would have to wait until nightfall. They're, they're not going to get any stretcher bearers able to get to well, them. Well, there were very few battalion stretcher bearers to pick the wounded up from the battlefield. And uh, as they followed up behind, they're, they're basically swamped. Now, this is Private Basil Farrer of the 2nd Green Howards. What does he say, Pete? Up they went, and then we stretcher bearers went over with them. We were... Quickly, very busy, picking up the wounded, taking them to regimental aid posts. As the day went on, there were other regiments going through and other wounded. As you were going along with a stretcher, you'd hear faint calls, Stretcher bearer! Stretcher bearer! From the wounded men. You'd go over and look, look, uh, look on his shoulder. Oh dear, this is terrible, but it's what it was. You were concerned with your own regiment. Sorry, chum, you're Yorks. If you collected all and sundry back to your aid post, your medical officer had his hands full already with his own wounded. If you're going to take every wounded man back, they were, they were strewn all over the shop like, going backwards and forwards, picking up a hell of a noise. Now, wow. he sounds indifferent, but he's doing the best he can in impossible circumstances. He can't take them all back, can he? Well, he has to have some criteria to sort out the collection of so many wounded. He's, he's clearly a very brave man, and nearly all the stretcher bearers were. Now, alongside them, the more conscientious chaplains and padres would often scour the battlefield, trying to bring what comfort they could to the desperately wounded in the long hours before they well, could be you, picked up. You're going to be one of those, and you're going to be Chaplain Roger Bulstrode, and he was a senior chaplain of the 20th Division. I have a confession to make that may sound ghoulish and brutal. If I had to be on a battlefield, the more dead and wounded there were, the happier I was. This was not due to lack of sympathy or imagination, but I think to a simple psychological fact. As a non-combatant, a chaplain was under no definite orders, and with nothing to do, he had nothing to think of but his own skin. But with work, and the highest work, bounding, he might to some extent forget his own fears in ministering to the needs of others. 
In going from one wounded man to another, he would have endless opportunities of ministration. He could often relieve the torment of thirst, perhaps by a drink from the man's own water bottle, which he was able to reach, never of course giving spirits to a man with an open wound lying out in the open. He could take down a message from dying lips. I recall one lad in the Shropshire's, lying in a shell hole, whose one thought was, I don't know what my mother will do. I could at least write to that mother and tell her how her boy had forgotten his pain in his thought for her. And one could speak, often in dying ears, the Saviour's precious name and of the blood that cleanses from all sin. It, it takes all sorts, doesn't it? It does, and, and in, you know he's bringing comfort to people, and that's the point. So, when they're picked up, the, the badly wounded, when they're picked up by the stretcher bearers, they're, they're, they're taken back to, as we said, the regimental aid post. And there, there's a medical officer attached to each battalion. Uh, and that, what would they do? Well, they're going to roughly bandage you up and they'd administer palliative morphia. Make um, sure you've had your tetanus injection. Make sure you've had your tetanus injection. Now, in Sergeant Kerr's case, he's carried by stretcher to a deep German dugout, which was being used as a, an advanced dressing station. So you're going to take the, the, the story on there. Now, he's laid out on a sort of rough wire mesh bed. It's a German bed, isn't it? Uh, uh, surrounded by other seriously wounded men. And, and uh, t t tell us what uh, uh, Sergeant William Kerr thinks of that. The dead and the walking wounded would be somewhere else. That was to be a terribly long night, pitch dark as it was down in the depths of the place. Two of the most seriously wounded screamed with their pains for most of the night until one of them passed away. He was at the far end of the dugout, but I could hear the murmured, he's dead, he's gone. His passing brought a hush in the darkness, a kind of two minute silence, in which even the remaining demented ones seemed to join. In no time though, he was at it again, but only for a few minutes longer. For Christ's sake, can't you stop that bawling? You're not the only one who's suffering. Strange to say, this reprimand from a hitherto quiet one was to do the trick. From then, all that could be heard was the utter silence of the underground darkness. For myself, with a dull pain all over my chest, I just lay without moving all through the night. Now, these advanced dressing stations, they are operated by the men of the Royal Army Medical Corps. Uh, and uh, the, 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 I've, I've always admired the Royal Army Medical Corps because everybody else is trying to kill people to maim them. And, and they're actually trying to, 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 to save lives, to patch people up, uh, uh, to, 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 to sort it all out, isn't it? Uh, and and, and they're, 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 their work never stops, does it? They're, they're, there's somebody somewhere always needs to be diagnosed, tended, bandaged, splinted, vaccinated, stitched, operated, or, or just drugged with morphine till they fall off the perch. And, and it, it, it's, it's, uh, they're often unsung heroes, aren't they? Uh, well, I, I think they are. Um, so, so what? How we got, How can we? How can we sort of sum this up? What's the best way of dealing with it? Well, you. <laughs> I, I guess one field ambulance unit, the 45th Field Ambulance uh, Royal Army Medical Corps, can stand as an example of all of the brave men trying their best to, to stem this tidal wave of death and, and, and wounds and damage on the Somme. So what is a field ambulance? It's not an ambulance. It's not it? an ambulance. It's, it's, it was the basic unit. Um, they were the, the sort of staging post between the regimental aid posts and the casualty clearing stations, which were further back. Now, 
Early in August, a group of the officers of the 45th Field Ambulance moved forward to examine the sector in which they'd been assigned to operate in the service of their parent body, which was the 15th Scottish Division. Now, at their head was one Captain uh, Elson Hamilton, and uh, you're going to be Captain Elson Hamilton, 45th Field Ambulance, RAMC. Yeah, we've got a few quotes from him, but I think this is the best. uh, 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 Here's what he says. Free Corps is to be our headquarters. There is an excellent big deep dugout made by the Hun as a headquarters. There is a long passage and from it opens off numerous wounds. There is room for about 50 officers and men. The mess is nearer the surface in a cellar, not very big but light and airy compared to the other rooms. From the passage run several shafts which serve as bolt holes and also air shafts. For patients, there is very poor accommodation, as one couldn't get a stretcher down into the big dugout. That'll be the stairs, they're too tight. Uh, There is a more or less sheltered spot where one could put half a dozen stretchers, or perhaps 20 sitters, that's people who are, well, walking wounded usually, who would be safe except for a direct hit, which would clean them out. Of course, there is no idea of keeping patients here. It is only a place for our headquarters and a reserve of men. Ah, oh, right. So, so what is it then? Well, it's it's the headquarters. It's just a staging post. It's a link between the advanced dressing station post and the main dressing station, situated still further back in Albert. Now, the organisation for relaying ambulances was crucial if they were not to to maroon the wounded at the front or leave them lying in the open at free. So, it's it's just one of these staging posts, but within the actual forty fifth field ambulance. And this is Captain Elson Hamilton again. Two cars are kept here and one at the advanced dressing station at Contel Maison. As the car from Contel Maison comes down, uh, this is, uh, I think he means an ambulance or, uh, yeah, um, it is loaded by, because uh, the, these are ambulances, by a medical officer who sees that all patients are properly bandaged, etc., does anything necessary for them. This car goes at once back to Alba and one of the other cars goes up to Contel Maison. As the first car passes the wagon lines, which are back a couple of miles, on the road to Alba, another car there moves up to Freecor. When the first discharges its patients at a main dressing station, it returns to the wagon line. So he's explaining a sort of circulation yeah. of the ambulances. Yeah. Now, the advance post was to be stationed at the Contour Chateaus. So Captain Hamilton goes forward to check whether it's suitable for their for their needs as medics. But he found that very little remained of the chateau. And uh, you're going to be Captain Elson Hamilton again. Contel Maison, a ruin with a dead and very stinking horse at the crossroads. The advanced dressing station is in the cellar of the chateau. There's still a bit of wall standing. There are four small rooms in the cellar. The patient goes down the stairs through A and B, where he waits his turn, to the dressing room C, where there are trestles on which to set the stretchers and chairs for the sitters. Then, when dressed and labelled, he's sent through to D, there to be fed and wait evacuation through the ambulances, as we said. D might hold nine stretchers and about a dozen sitters on a bench down the sign. The whole place is lumbered up with beds and quite unnecessary stuff, which I shall clear out. The officer's room is small but beautifully finished, all boarded over with a fixed table and a bed. Two stretchers can just fit in, so it holds three people with a squeeze. There is a blowhole for air and a certain amount of light but artificial light is necessary all the time. So there's some light filters it, but it's still dark and gloomy down there. 
Yeah, now these facilities seem perfectly adequate for their requirements, although the absence of a, a functioning water supply meant all that they needed would have to be laboriously sent forward in petrol tins. That's hard work. It is. Now, this, this, this advanced, tra- it's, uh, advanced dressing station, it, it has to be kitted out with all the... So they've got to have all the medical supplies they need once the casualties start to flood in, brought back by the stretcher bearers. Uh, so what, what sort of things are we talking about here? Well, stretchers. Stretchers, ah. for one, and, and rather surprisingly, plenty of blankets, because even in the summer, wounded men suffering from shock could feel the cold. Yeah, and, and and of course, band. They need loads of bandages and splints, pr- pretty well all sizes and shapes, I'd imagine. Um, um, uh, well, disinfectant. Yeah, yeah, something as simple as that. Now, it's all got to be brought forward across some of the most dangerous ground on earth. Now, um, so Hamilton, that's uh, Captain. That was me, Captain Elton Hamilton. He scouted out the position, and the rest of Forty Fifth Field Ambulance move up a few days later. Um, now. The, the the person we're going to 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 to, uh, to go through and you're going to be is Lieutenant Lawrence Gameson of, of course Forty Fifth Field Ambulance. Now he's given directions by Hamilton and uh, he, they're quite eccentric, but they're really effective at guiding him. And uh, you're going to read uh, we're going to have a lot from Lieutenant Lawrence Gameson, but uh, uh, but you're going to read how the directions work. Contour Maison is quite completely ruined. We were told to turn left at the second bad smell. The directions proved to be as accurate as a precise map reference. We live in the remains. So, Gary, that'd be that stinking horse. Yeah, it'd be the stinking horse. Yeah, we live in. Is the that re- like Fred? <laughs> Well, he's the first bad smell <laughs> yeah. and last bad smell. Now, the reason we, we're just getting a bit of levity in now because this this podcast is spinning off into despair with the rest of this. So, Carrot, sorry, Gary, I That's, may have interrupted you. We live in the remains of a chateau. A few chunks of wall and part of one room is all that is left above ground. The cellars are sound. There are German dugouts many feet below the original cellars. Our mess is at this depth. It's a small, square, box-like room having connection with the relatively fresh air outside by means of a long, wood-lined shaft, which, being of German make, naturally faces the enemy. A good shot would lob down the shaft and burst in our box. Already, a shell has exploded almost on the edge of the opening. It sent down a great woof of smoke, stink and dust, which put out our lamp. Seems an odd place for a living quarters, but I always anticipate the worst. I am not always wrong. <laughs> Here, at Contourmaison, I feel most curiously and disturbingly isolated, as if one was going to be stuck here forever. Now, it's a miserable, it must be a claustrophobic environment down down there, no, with gloomy, no, not well, a bit of fresh air, but not... Yeah. Uh, but it, it's worse outside, I suppose. Uh, and, and, and I suppose the German shells, bullets, don't make any difference whether you're wearing a, a Red Cross or not. Right. And you're going to be uh, Gameson again. Soon, the wounded began to arrive. Some walking, some carried, some just helped along. The usual bloody, patient, battered crowd, without a grouse and with scarcely a groan. Now, that's because soldiers never complain. Gary... <laughs> Yeah, that's that's right. Well, yeah, the 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 now nah, the the so these wounded, uh, ch- they changed the the cellars into a sort of 
combination of it. It's it's almost like it's like your doctor's. You often go to the doctors with your various complaints, but it's like a doctor's waiting room. Um, it, it, there's a, and then off it, there's a surgery, and then of course, what else would there be? Well, there's a <laughs> an abattoir, and uh, lastly, a crypt. Yeah. So for the wounded men and and. And the doctors, it must have been a sort of subterranean hell. And you're going to be Lieutenant Lawrence Gameson again. The flow of work in our cellar was uncertain. Times of slackness, alternating with times of great stress, when the place was filled with scores upon scores of reeking, bleeding men. These times of great stress were not isolated incidents to be dealt with, cleaned up and then forgotten, like a railway accident. They recurred regularly. They went on and on and on. Stretchers blocked the cellar floors, the passages, the battered shelter that remained above ground and the approaches outside. Often we worked for hours on end without respite at the crude dressing tables, at men grounded on stretchers, at men squatting or sticking. It was emphatically not sheer muddle, but the congestion beggars description. Our working space was limited. We got in each other's way. There was a constant movement of bearers shuffling and staggering with stretchers, negotiating the cellar stairs, seeking a way in or out and a bare space whereon to deposit their burdens. Walking wounded sat on benches or squatted between the stretchers on each available foot of floor, patiently waiting their turn to be dressed or get their shot of anti-tetanus serum. Sometimes a man on a stretcher would vomit explosively spewing over himself and his neighbours. I've seen mounted troops brought in with liquid faeces oozing from the unlaced legs of their breeches. Occasionally, a man would gasp and die as he lay on his stretcher. All this was routine and the waiting crowd looked on unconcerned. No one spoke much during these seemingly endless periods of congestion. For the most part, the wounded showed little tendency to talk and to exchange the customary quips. They waited patiently while we got on with our work with no needless words. This was done in the poor light of candles and reeking lamps. There was little water and of course no running water. Dressings and filth accumulated to be burnt outside with a minimum of smoke. The air became rank, worse when gas was about for always had to be par- airways. airways had to be partially blocked. Blood was the general background, dried, drying or wet. With the means then available, we did our best for the wounded's immediate needs and for their rapid evacuation by ambulance to free court. That, that, that just sounds awful, doesn't it? It just sounds awful. And in those circumstances, even something simple must have been just just complicated. But just press, stressed, people... Oh. And, and uh, everybody everybody has to give, be given a tetanus injection. And even that simple task becomes a problem as, as Lawrence Gameson again uh, goes on. One of our troubles was the shortage of serum needles. It was impossible to keep sharp what we had. To shove large, blunt needles into a man already tired, almost beyond endurance, was no nice task. But it had to be done. It was then that orders came from a distance, forbidding all but medical officers to inject serum. The orders would have been more convincing had the supply of new needles been increased. It was not. And uh, we've we've all just in this country been vaccinated, or most of us have, and uh, completely painless. But imagine it with a blunt needle being rammed into your arm. And you, 
being wounded, not not in perfect health like like we are. Uh, so the endless endless work for these doctors and and and, and the medical personnel uh, uh, and and up to up to their their armpits in 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 blood and guts, people's innards. Um, what do you think they looked like? Well, Lawrence Gameson will tell us. There is a continuous stream of wounded through at all hours. The pips on my tunic cuffs are shiny with polished blood, blood of someone else, of infantry mostly. Although, but a middle, uh, although but a middleman, one gets sick of blood smell and of the endless procession of red raw human meat passing through our hands. Wow. Um, yes, meat, um, vomit. We've had ripped and torn and loosened bowels. Uh, what do you think? Uh, what do you think arrives uh, with all that? In it's summer. What do well, you think? it's going to be flies, isn't it? Bloated, buzzing flies, shells. Um, uh, well, 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 what's the problem? I mean, you've got shells. They're dangerous, really dangerous. Uh, flies, a bit annoying, or or, uh, or is there a problem well, it's with not, flies? It's not just the, the buzzing, is it? It's it's the flies. Uh, they what's, have natural, their, what's their favourite food? Well, they have a natural uh, predilection for faeces. Uh, Shit. That, Shit. That accelerates the spread of disease. And, and somehow that amplifies the overall horror uh, simply by dint of their ceaseless buzzing and their Bzzz. thoroughly nauseating lifestyle. They do. They 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 go from the wounds to the shit to the oh to, to the vomit and the oh. Bryn Hammond did a very good impression of that when we were in Gallipoli. He did. He did. He's quite 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 startlingly brilliant. Um, so uh, so tell uh, so what does Lawrence Gameson do about the flies? This evening I killed fourteen flies with one swipe with a rolled-up copy of an ancient times. They are infinitely numerous, leisurely and deliberate in movement and have large, sticky feet. The neighbourhood is an incubator for them. Eggs are laid in corpses of Germans and horses, hatching in the rotting semi-liquid flesh. The rest of their lives, for the most part, is an ephemeral, gluttonish revel amongst all that is most revolting in this revolting region of putrefaction and decay. They swarm upon food, they buzz. Night and day in this room resounds with their buzzing. The drone becomes a background. It even steals into one's sleep. And they're laying eggs in the bodies of the wounded and the dead. It's just awful. And it's very different from... These boys had grown up with... Uh, with with the uh, boys' own style magazines, and you know, you get wounded and you get a little bit of a sling put on you, and it, you're everybody's hero. This is uh, this is this is just awful, awful. Um, and Gameson goes on. This is I'm sorry we got so much from Gameson in one way, but on another, he's just a great witness to it. And and the best way of doing it is not to hear me and Gary rabbit on with what we think it was like. Let's hear what Lawrence Gameson. Uh, Speaking to us via the medium of Gary uh, lets us know. And the next quote's another horrific quote. I saw more torn human tissues than one would ever have thought possible in so short a time. There was hardly any part of the body I did not see cut or exposed. Maggot invasion was common. One unconscious man arrived with part of a frontal lobe protruding from a hole in his skull. The protruding portion of his brain was moving with maggots. There was a man with a loop of gut sticking out of a gash in his uniform. It was a bayonet wound. 
the loop of gut had been lightly dressed with gauze, beneath which there was a wriggling mass of maggots. The man had been lying out wounded and the flies never missed a chance. His condition was deplorable. When men had been left out wounded for some time, often their shoulders, buttocks or whole back were invaded by the creatures in the areas of skin compressed by the weight of their immobilised bodies. One man I saw had been lying out because both legs were wounded. Prolonged pressure had caused necrosis of the skin over his buttocks and of the superficial portions of muscle beneath uh, Sorry, beneath it. Maggots had invaded the deeper tissues. I had to pick them out with long forceps. The man was unaware of his condition. Maggot invasion was always accompanied by a foul smell since it flourished only in tissues undergoing some degree of decomposition. As a rule, the patient did not notice the stink or did not know that it came from his own body if sensitive enough to notice it. Now, they can't save everybody, can they? It's impossible. Um, um, and, uh, I mean, people are in such a state that they just die. Uh, uh, and uh, so what do they do with the, the, the bodies? They, they have to put them in, in, in one of the rooms, don't they? They just have to. It becomes a, a crypt, uh, a bit of a reminder of their own impotence, I suppose, their inability to uh, save everybody. And again, Lawrence Gameson. Two bodies in the room, covered with blankets. Head one end, feet the other. It's the repetition which gets on one's nerves. Stiff and still, they obtrude, seem to fill the place. Can't look away from them. Turned back the blankets and looked at their faces. Covered them up and went to the doorway. But God, the world seems stiff and still today and death is everywhere. Now, sometimes uh, the pardo, we mentioned the pardos before, they, they'd be sent to comfort and pacify the dying you know, with promises of eternal life. Uh, it's always uh, cheer the, the dying up. Uh, but uh, Gameson finds one of them uh, who arrives pe- peculiarly depressing, and uh, I found this. I found that this did quite depress me. The whole the whole story you're going to relate is quite depressing and just miserable. A certain unhumorous Presbyterian priest haunted our cellars in those days. Padres were always welcome, but this man was rather exceptional. In addition to the usual armaments of cigarettes and field service postcards, he carried a concertina. An eeriness clung to him. His favourite pitch was at the distant end of the cellar floor, beneath the vaulted roof. Here he squatted, a figure not easily forgotten, long, uh, lugubrious face peering above the wheezing bellows, swaying from side to side in the flickering candlelight, playing dour tunes to those on the stretchers around him. He was quite beyond my ken. He suggested impending doom, He gave me the creeps. Most of our patients were Scotsmen. Beyond question, they valued highly the ministrations of this terrifying priest. I wouldn't have done. Can you just imagine you're lying there near death and somebody's playing... So miserable. Oh, anyway, um, and that. Well, that's the last quote for a while from him. I think it might be the end of of games. What a what a what a what a witness he is. He is. Uh, wh- now, when the doctors bandaged them up as best they could, the seriously wounded would be sent back on the ambulances that we mentioned earlier. Now, these these ambulances, well, they're unsprung for one thing, and they jolt unmercifully down what remains of the endlessly shelled roads. So this was an experience that many men never forgot as their broken bones grated against each other. 
and after being severely wounded in his hip and left leg at the Mets Wood, Sergeant Tom Price faced such an ordeal. And you're going to be Sergeant Tom Price of the 13th Welch Regiment. We were put in a Ford ambulance van with rubber tyres, hard wheels. There were, there were six of us, three on each side, and I don't know which of the six of us screamed the most on that journey down over the rutted shell-hold road, uh, roads. Um, that would have been really It awful. must have been absolute murder. Now, when they finally reach safety, which is well behind the lines, there's a, there's a new awakening. Many have uh, given up almost given up hope of ever returning to a normal life. And then they discovered the presence of the women nurses. Now, that seemed to them to uh, epitomise the promise of a whole new life away from the horrors of the front line. And this is Private Henry Russell of the 1st 5th London Rifle Brigade. I looked up in a sort of half coma to see a Red Cross nurse looking down at me. I was never to forget this because I have always thought of it as the most beautiful sight I've ever seen in my life. I never saw this girl again and I only know her name to be Miss Jones. I have been asked what is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen and I've always given the same answer. A woman. I have seen the sunrise on the Jungfrau, the sunset at Corbière, the midnight sun in northern Norway, evening light on the Taj Mahal, the Mediterranean blue, England and Paris in the spring, the glory that was Greece. I can therefore claim to have seen a lot of wonderful sights, but I still give the same answer. This <laughs> woman. I think that's marvellous. It is, but there's also plenty of men who come round only to find that uh, new horrors surround them. (laughs) What could, what do you mean? Well, when Private Norman Cliff awoke in a tented hospital, his senses are almost overwhelmed and you're once more going to be Private Norman Cliff of the First Grenadier Guards. I looked around and my nostrils were assailed by the sickening odour of superating wounds and soiled bandages. There were badly disfigured men, pale-faced lads from, from whom life was ebbing, heavily bandaged stumps indicating this or that limb was missing. Saddest of all was a, a youngster who'd been reduced to a trunk, minus arms and legs. How could it be possible that he was not only alive, but that his spirit seemed undaunted? Glancing at the bandages swathing his stumps, he challenged his nurse in a strong Scottish accent. How about three rounds with me tonight, sister? Humour, even in extremis. Mercifully, before the day dawned, the spark of life went out of him. That's a a, a sad story. That's all I can say. So even... uh, even if they're, they're, they're well some of them don't like that poor sod uh, die but perhaps he was lucky to die uh, even if their wounds respond to treatment uh, healing's not always painless is it it can be agonizing uh, no penicillin uh, and the, the the way they packed and treated and drained pus from wounds well, sounds horrible, doesn't it? We're all, they seem primitive to us now. And you're going to be Sergeant Roland Mountfield of the 10th Royal Fusiliers. And you're having a terrible time. My wound is dressed twice a day and is more awful every time. A sign, as I'm assured, that it is healing up nicely. It has to be packed at the lower entrance, which means that a few yards of bandage are poked up and in with a knitting needle to keep it open and allow it to discharge. 
It consists of a little blue mark on the top of my shoulders where the bullet went in and a long, deep slit a few inches down my back where it came out. Jeez, how could that help? I'm not sure. But they have to get the pus out because there's no pen. If you get gangrene, you've had it. Uh, The the only way out with gangrene is to cut your arm and leg off. And sometimes you get it gangrene in a place like the stomach where you you can't cut your stomach off. You could cut your stomach off, but that's an entire... But an open wound, I mean, you've got to be careful about hygiene and disinfecting and and, 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 and putting a knitting needle in. Is that sanitised? They've probably probably sanitised the knitting needle. Probably. (laughs) It's awful, isn't it? Now, the, the lightly wounded, what's the aim with lightly wounded? Well, the aim is to patch them up and get them ready to fight again. I mean, the, the, the demands of the war are still there, but uh, the prospects for the seriously wounded, they're, they're often extremely bleak. There is, because they don't really have a welfare state in those days. We're, we're now looking at the, the longer-term future. We're moving away from the Somme just to look at the... the um, what, 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 what happens if you're badly wounded? Uh, you get pension, I suppose. No, I mean... You did get a pension, it, 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 but it, it wasn't always adequate. It wasn't a lot, and you, you, you live in a society where people either earned a living or existed in abject poverty. Those were your choices at that time. And after the war, those Somme wounded, uh, a lot of them, uh, they got prosthetic legs, if they got them, and when they got them, if they fitted. Uh, the, some of them in wheelchairs, uh, no arms, um or one arm, or get, uh, emasculated, which you don't like to think about, uh, mutilated faces, some of those awful pictures that people like to look at and put on the internet, which are just weird. I don't understand how they can look at them. Well, often much. they're considered nuisances in a society where, you know, you're expected to stand on your own two feet. If, if you had them. If you had them. <laughs> Yeah, good point. And I always use one story to stand for all those lives. I interviewed a chap called uh, uh, John Dre. He'd served, I think he was at uh, Monte Cassino uh, in the Second World War. Uh, But this is a terrible story, uh, and it's about his dad, really. Um, It... It, it it shows how they just these these things impact on families, uh, and it's a tragic tale. It is a tragic tale. Now his dad was Private George Dre, and he'd been serving with the Six Northamptonshire, and he'd been badly wounded in Trones Wood uh, back in 1916, possibly in the attack that we talked about earlier when uh, Maxwell led them through. Now his injuries. They'd not probably healed properly healed, had they? And his son, no. as you say, John Dre, you interviewed him in connection with his own service. That's right. That's in, why I saw him in the Italian campaign during the Second World War. But he recounted how his father uh, had sort of lost his final battle, didn't he? And you're going to be John Dre. Uh, yeah, John Dre talking about George Dre. Yeah, that's right. And John Dre says this: he was the deputy heart. Oh, so George Dre was the deputy peer master on the Woolwich. Very. I was born in 1926, and in December 1928, two years old I was, he came home from work just before Christmas and said, I've got a headache, I think I'm going to bed. Now, I want to make this clear, this is a family story, because he was two years old, he doesn't remember this, it's, it's the family story. I think I'm going to bed. It was December 23rd. My sister went up with a cup of tea for him, and she came running down, there's something funny with daddy's eye. The eye was bulging. I'm just looking at you. You've just had a, an operation on your eye. Uh, but so, Sorry about that. There's no humour in this. The eye was bulging on one side. 
They ran him into hospital and this blood clot was pushing the eye from behind. They took the eye away and they thought that was the end of it, that he'd be old one-eyed George for the rest of his life. But the blood clot had turned and was going back. The next day was 24th of December. It was my mother's birthday. About eight at night, she went up to the hospital. George was dozy, half unconscious. All of a sudden, he became very clear and he said, Elsie, have you hung the children's stockings up? She said, not yet. He said, I'll go home if I was you and do the stockings. I'll see you tomorrow. Well, she did. Before she got home, he was dead. This blood clot had touched his brain and killed him. And the last sentence, Christmas Eve, my mother's birthday, and she was six months pregnant with my last sister. Now that is, is, is awful. I've always thought, I remember thinking I could never read that without almost breaking down. It, it, it is just so awful, a story. I accept that it's a family story. The, a two-year-old can't have remembered that. I accept that the medical details are dodgy in the extreme, but it's what they thought was happening. And it's certainly what happened to uh, George Dre. And it's certainly the impact on that family. That poor woman, a <laughs> birthday, Christmas Eve, and she's six months pregnant. How are they going to ma- manage? How are they? Uh, the, the, the earner's gone. They're going to be on a pension. Unfortunately, that wasn't unique, was it, in the, the two decades that followed the war particularly, uh, as people collapsed in a sort of delayed reaction to the damage that they'd actually suffered during the war. And that's, I remind you, George, the reason we're doing this in this is that George Dre was wounded during the Somme. This is part of the longer story of the Somme. Well, this has not been a cheery podcast, but I hope I hope people will think about the wounded. The Somme isn't just the 1st of July. It reaches way after that, uh, and it, it impacts on people's lives, uh, for, well, for the rest of their lives. But also the, the, the brave... Uh the brave people of the RAMC who who went out and collected people from the battlefield, um, the walking wounded themselves, you know, that that having to to drag themselves away and get down to those casualty clearing stations, and the logistics behind all of that. It, it's it's a terrible story, and I'm glad we've we've been able to tell people. I hope I hope you've enjoyed the wrong word. I hope you find it interesting. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee 
at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?